Hello listeners and welcome to this special Unions 21 bite-sized masterclass podcast. This podcast is supported by the University of Sheffield's Political Economy Research Institute, better known as Sperry, and Open Democracy's Beyond Trafficking and Slavery Project. I'm Simon Sapper. I'm Becky Wright. And I'm Tom Hope from Sperry. This episode looks at internationalism, not in the conventional solidarity sense uh, that trade unions often speak about international relations, but actually in an organising sense, a structure sense. And we have Gary Elliott from Northwest International to talk about how his union has very consciously restructured on an, on an international basis. Thank you. I, I now want to introduce um, Gary Elliott, who's going to talk about Beyond Borders. Gary, I've known for a long time, is the uh, is the head of organising at Nautilus. He oversees the union's organising department, responsibilities covering membership, recruitment, retention, servicing members and training spanning the UK, the Netherlands and Switzerland. He's also led work on international strategic agreements, bringing centralised collective bargaining to multinationalities. Gary. OK, thanks, Sean. Uh, yeah, just thanks for that introduction. Just for people who might not understand uh, what Nautilus International is, it's a union that represents merchant seafarers, the merchant navy. We've been in existence since 1857, uh, and we're the first TUC-affiliated union to go cross-borders in our organising remit. So we were, as I say, formed over 160 years ago. We've got 23,000 members, predominantly UK and Dutch. We have a high density of... Membership. We have a professional body to our trade union membership as well. And people who join us at 16, 17 and go through a training curve of three years at a college uh, to qualify to work on ships tend to stay in that career for a lifetime and so retain their membership for a lifetime as a, as a professional organisation. We've also belonged to a federation of other seafaring unions across the world for over 100 years where we have an informal arrangement of assistance. So we had Australian seafarers who were in UK ports and needed assistance, then we would look to assist them as a, uh, as a fellow seafaring union, but very much more on an informal basis, doing it when and where required. Prior to 1990, we had centralised collective bargaining. And in a way, what I'm going to talk about for the next six or seven minutes is a return to an element of centralised collective bargaining for a number of different nationalities across across the globe. So we set up as a UK-centric union. We've been a UK-centric union for 150 years. We get to the 1990s and we suddenly have a decision to make. We've got decline in membership due to age demographics. And we have a simple choice. Do, do we merge with another UK union? Do we consider our options in generalistic transport unions such as Unite or the RMT, or do we retain our specialism of representing seafarers for over 150 years? And we took the view that the best way forward in an ever-increasing global world where employers operate in a global environment, they don't just operate across Europe, they operate from Asia, America. We've got to be able to respond to that as a trade union movement. We've got to be able to organise in them countries and we've got to be able to organise amongst them nationalities to make sure there's no weakness and there's no chink for them to play off one nationality against the other. So that was the concept of, of where we were viewing that what we would do in the 1990s. We, we fast forward to 2009 and we made a decision 
to get into discussions with our Dutch colleagues in the Netherlands who were the FWZ. And that was on the basis that a fifth of our membership were Anglo-Dutch. On the ships operating across many regions of, of Europe in particular were Anglo-Dutch. And what better way of, of protecting their terms and conditions and not letting employers play off one nationality against the other than to actually merge and actually represent their members as a collective body. So what we put into place was a two-year relationship. It's like, a, it's like to see we've got the same values, this, you know, due diligence on finances, the membership, the demographics, everything else that comes, comes into play. And then after a two-year period, we looked to actually uh, physically merge as one union. And that's where we were previously known as Newmast. They were known as FWZ. We came together as Nautilus International, which is where we are today. What that did by doing that in 2009, that gave a concept of where we would be in the next 10, 20, 30 years. And when we're organising our young members and we're bringing them out to the UK colleges at 16, 17, 18, and they're going to have a career for 30, 40 years, they're going to go global. They're going to reside globally. They might not reside in the UK. And they want to know that the union is able to reach out to them, whether they're in Australia, Brazil, Africa, it doesn't matter. Wherever they're residing, wherever they're sailing, wherever they need representation, that, that we are there. And that's, that was important to us from an international specific. Now, we, some talk earlier on about uh, coverage of collective bargaining. In the Netherlands, it's 80%. 80% of the workforce is covered by a collective bargaining. It's high union recognition within the Netherlands. And I'll come back to that in a minute because we use the legislation and we use the rights where we can, in whatever country we can, to give our members the best benefits. And we'll use that for UK members. We will use Dutch legislation to bring through more effective protections for our, for our members. Just after the decision to do that with the Netherlands, we also merged with a Swiss union. And now some people say that sounds strange. Switzerland doesn't sound like a naval or a seafaring uh, entity. And it, it might seem strange, but there was logic behind it. How better to organise a workforce, predominantly Eastern European, who are unorganised? We have a lot of Eastern Europeans who reside in the UK who are members of ours, and, and they receive the same benefits as anyone else within the UK. What better than to actually go out to them in the areas that they facilitate, on the Danube, up the Rhine, between Switzerland and Rotterdam, across to Germany, <coughs> on the barge networks that provide all of them, their facilities across, across them countries. And that was the reason for going with Switzerland, so that we could organise a very unorganised workforce into, into an effective union. So that's where we stand at the moment, UK, Dutch, Swiss Union, known as Nautilus International. We're in talk with a number of other countries at the moment, a lot of interest across Scandinavia, a lot of interest in uh, Eastern, Eastern Europe and much, much wider. And I have got no hesitation that in 10, 15 years' time, we'll probably have double figures in relation to, to countries that have come into Nautilus International, where we have the same beliefs and we want the same protections uh, and we want the jo uh, same job security. So why is, that, why is that important on the last sort of three or four minutes that I'm going to speak on? It's because it sets the picture for what we achieved this year 
which was a direct, because it's no good, it's no good getting into a situation where you go down the international route. You're trying to organise your young members who have a global outsight on, on what they want to do. Unless you're going to be effective, unless you are going to protect people, unless you're going to get collective bargaining, unless you're going to do all of that, then, then really what was the point? And, and the proof's in the pudding, in effect. So the case study, as I say, that I was going to go through with you for a couple of minutes. Shell International employs over 100,000 employees worldwide. They're an Anglo-Dutch company, so there's a link straight away. They're based all over the world, Asia, Netherlands, UK, massive uh, 2,000 employees in London uh, on the banks, on, on the embankment. And what did we do? We had a situation there, 100,000 employees, a lot of their employees unorganised. They have 49 different nationalities that they negotiate with every year. So they have 49 meetings to discuss pay. The UK is just one of them. We have our negotiations early January, then they go out and they make their way around the world to speak to 49 different uh, organisations. Last year, we sat down with them for 12 months and negotiated the first international strategic agreement for Shell International. And we are now the lead negotiator for all 49 nationalities. So once a year, which we've just done, we've just spent two days with the employer we negotiated the terms and conditions and the pay for all 49 nationalities across all countries, across the whole fleet of that organisation. That benefits that organisation. A lot of resource saved, a lot of time saved. We're conferring with our sister unions. We're bringing to the table the aspirations that they want and the, and the development they've done. But what that's done is it's, done a, it's had a couple of effects. It's allowed us to use various elements of legislation that we felt were appropriate. We have a direct link into Brussels and, and Geneva in, in the International Maritime Organization. We're seen as a single transnational international uh, union, and we can put best practice across the boundaries, across the borders. And that's what we've done here. We've brought the best terms up, and we brought a lot of the countries such as Latvia, India, Croatia, we brought a lot of their terms up, we brought a lot of their pay rates up uh, to match what we're doing in the UK, the UK and Netherlands. And as I say, to, to sign off that document was unheard of. Just over 12 months ago, when we did the previous negotiations and we walked in the room, there's a number of international bodies that sit round in these negotiations. The paper file was that high off the ground. CBAs, collective agreements, memorandums of understanding, you name it, it's in that pile. After 12 months, that is the sole recognition agreement for the whole Shell fleet for 100,000 employees is in that one document. And that document is negotiated with Nautilus once a year. And I'll just take a phrase, I'll just take a sentence out, the first page, by the Shell fleet. The company recognises Nautilus International as the lead body to negotiate on all terms and conditions worldwide. Just as important, the second comment, union membership. The company recognises the value of union membership and accordingly recommends that officers covered by this agreement, 100,000, be members of the recognised union in that document. That would not have been there 12 months ago. That's organising people who require organising. We are now able to go into them 49 countries, them 49 nationalities, 
and organise them where they're unorganised. Where they're organised already, that's great. We work with the sister union and we assist them in organising and making sure that their elements come to the table. But in countries such as we've just done it recently in Latvia, where they had no organisation, they had no representative union, we've brought them into our membership and they're now party to, to Nautilus membership. So that was just to give you a little bit of an idea on what had happened there, very quick sort of remit into it. Where do we go from here? We'll expand our international influence. Will that take us outside of what we do in the UK? No, we've been doing that for 160 years. We're part of the TUC, we're part of the Unions 21, we're affiliated to everything that happens within the UK. Of course we are. But we're maintaining job security and we're maintaining our members' jobs by expanding internationally. And you've got to be able to respond globally because that's where it's going. It doesn't matter. You know, you can talk about Brexit, you can talk about any element you want, the workforce is going global. The employers are going global. And you either respond or you, you continue to decline. Gary, okay. thank you very much. <clears throat> so, the main takeaways from that, Tom, what, did, what struck you about Gary's uh, contribution? I thought what was interesting was here you have an industry where the people who work in it, um, through the, the nature of the work which takes them around the world, are going to have a, a global mindset in how they, they see their work and therefore it makes perfect sense for the union to reflect that back and also have a, a global mindset in how they are op in how they are structured but also how they kind of see the terrain in which they operate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Tom. And I, I think when unions were looking about where to go next or kind of how they merge if they need to merge for industrial reasons... It strikes me as really unusual that some unions haven't thought to merge outside of our borders because they do have members who work in global companies or they kind of travel quite a lot. And I'm wondering whether the 21st century union is going to have a lot more of a kind of structured international focus, which isn't going to be like the, the union federations per se, but actually unions themselves operating in lots of different countries yeah i think again it's, it's horses for courses in the sense that you could think of some multinational companies where there are already well-established indigenous unions in, in each of the member nations that the company operates in uh, but of course collaboration across international borders is is none of it has gone as far i think as, as the nautilus experience but you do have some UK unions who organise on a British Isles basis and you do have some strategic alliances formed across the Atlantic as well but I think what Gary described and especially his reference to the collective bargaining agreement with Shell yeah, that yeah. takes it to a, to a new level. It takes it to a whole new level and the other thing to consider is that this is kind of institutionalised almost so it's not about one officer has managed to get in contact with another officer and they're building a good relationship it's actually this is the kind of the structure and i think what we have to be really mindful of is how do we make those links and maintain those links between unions if you're not going to merge yeah i, I think that's right and i think they've also they've looked quite strategically at their industry and said where are the where are the pockets of unorganized workers and therefore kind of deliberately sought to organize those unorganized workers because it's a it is a bad thing if there is a big pool of yeah. unorganized workers out there who could potentially be used to undercut 
organised work. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if they're not, if especially if they're in places where you think I'm not going to find any unorganised workers there who are a threat to my organised workers, like Switzerland, <laughs> in the case of Northwest. And I just think that shows great strategic vision. Yeah, absolutely. This podcast is one of a series of five bite-sized masterclasses from Unions 21, supported by Sperry and Open Democracy. You can subscribe and rate the other episodes on Podbean, iTunes and the podcasting platform of your choice. You've been listening to me, Simon Sapper. Me, Becky Wright. And me, Tom Hunt. This Unions 21 bite-sized masterclass podcast has been supported by Sperry and Beyond Trafficking and Slavery on Open Democracy. Beyond Trafficking and Slavery is a platform working to explain how and why labour exploitation takes place, as well as what unions and other activists are doing to prevent it. Take a look at www.opendemocracy.net forward slash beyond slavery. This has been a Makes You Think production.